Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Alfan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you may have. Our number is 291 There you go. <laughs> Almost blew that one. There you go. <laughs> the area code here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana is 225, and you can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. There you go. Sure wish you would. We really appreciate hearing from you and hearing what you got to say. Sure. And any questions you might have. Right now is the great time to get that question answered thoroughly always is a lot of times folks will call either just before break or whatever and they get put on hold for an extended period of time before we can take the call of course if you call now you go straight up to the top of the list and then towards the end of the show we have to kind of quit taking calls at a certain point because we have to be out at a certain time on time so we know if this call may last potentially three or four minutes and we've only got a minute and a half (laughs) yep pretty much do the math there yeah (laughs) sitting there kind of watching the news feed that we've got in the studio here and it's just showing a lot of the flooding and stuff all around the country yeah relating to all the storms and things that we've had and of course that begs the question what happens to all these vehicles once they're flooded right once and, the water's gone down and mm-hmm. you know the vehicles are accessible now what happens to them well in in louisiana because we have had sort of a long history of flooding right and, and such as that the legislature has responded and a car that is flooded and declared a total loss by the insurance company has the title marked as such it has right. a, it's a salvage title right and that would warn anyone who might come across one of these vehicles because you have operators who go out and they buy up these cars supposedly as salvage they're going to salvage the car and sell mm-hmm. the parts off of it but then what they say is, hey, we can take two or three of these cars and put them together and make a car again, and then it's worth sell a lot it. more money than worth more money than we were quicker turnaround and what have you, and they clean it up, dry it out, whatever they're going to do, and then sell it to the unsuspecting people. And generally, those cars, once they have been underwater, you know, once water gets up, certainly to the dash of the car, right, and it really even once it gets up to the seats on most modern cars. There's so many electronics and things in that car that what happens, that water sits in the car for a period of time. It's sitting out in the sun with the windows rolled up. Steam starts to form. And this moisture gets into every connection and every module on the car. And that being bad enough, once it starts doing its thing, it starts to corrode those terminals. Mm -hmm. And when the corrosion starts, you start getting bad connections, loose connections, intermittent problems that nobody can find. Can't be resolved. Yeah. And unfortunately you may clean this car up put a dehydrator in it dry mm-hmm. it out and it may be fine for a week two weeks maybe months. six months yeah. so the problems may not start really showing up for six months even up to a year later depending on how well they kind of cleaned it out mm-hmm. and when they do start you know you'll get things like you, you buy the car and the starter goes out well okay starters go out right put a new starter on it then the alternator goes out well alternators go out sometimes then the airbag light pops on, and you you just you start to see a pattern here pretty quick. And when you get into the shop, the first thing they're going to do is start looking under the dash and seeing all these corroded up terminals, and say, "Man, it, yeah, there's, it, there's nowhere to go here. Nowhere to go here. Nowhere to stop." Yeah, most of the better shops are going to try to warn you and not get involved in it. Sure. Now, if you got a less trained uh, individual working on the car who's not familiar with the problems, he may go in and fix the symptoms. But what you find is that after you've invested two, three, four thousand dollars in repairs, it's like this hadn't ended. It just keeps going on. 
and may not be the same problem coming back, but it's repeated problems. Mm-hmm. So what you've got is a car here that is basically not economically feasible to continue repairing. Sure. And the better the guy is who's working on the car and the more attuned he is to this sort of thing, the, the faster he's going to spot that problem and head you off right there. Right. And if it's soon enough after the purchase, sometimes you can go back to whoever sold you the car and have some legal recourse. Yes. I know this all varies so much state to state. I can only speak from Louisiana. Sure. In Louisiana, you have what they call retribution law. The retribution law means that you have 90 days to uncover a major defect in a vehicle. Right. And if you, I don't pretend to be a lawyer, but if you basically find a major problem, now that's not, well, you know, the window don't work or, window doesn't yeah, work right, or the headlights out or something. We, yeah. We're talking a major problem like like a transmission issue or a rear end issue, things, especially things that would have gotten so, water in them. Something that renders the car unusable for the purpose for which it was purchased. So if you do find that, you can often go back and either rescind the transaction, which, hey, I'll give you a car back, you give me the money back. Right. Now, unfortunately, if you're buying from an individual or a little small lot and they don't have the money to give you back, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, that, which is one reason to buy maybe from a, a larger, more reputable type place, or at least from somebody you know. Sure. Uh, but, again, if you bought the car from an individual and he spent the money, Right. Then you've got a civil suit against him, which, you know, good luck collecting that. But the point is, Louisiana tries to protect people from this type of activity. And I know after Katrina and even after the flood in here right. in Baton Rouge, man, we were watching cars getting shipped out of here. Oh, yeah, just by the, by the truckloads. Truckloads of them, literally. A lot of them were being taken down to Mexico. Sure. Where they were being cleaned up, refurbed, and then... They may stay there. They may make their way back up to the United States. There are also states that do not have as stringent titling laws. And what they can do is take the car to another state, retitle it in that state, come back with a clean title. And then because they don't observe the same proprieties that we do here. Here, once that title is marked salvage, as long as you stay in the state of Louisiana, it will always be a salvage title. But let's say you take the car, and I'm just going to throw out Alabama okay. as a, for instance, to Alabama, they may or may not have the same law. So when you go there and you retitle the car, they're just, as long as you pay the tax on the right. value of the car. You get a clear title. You get a title, an Alabama title, which doesn't have that on it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you bring it back to Louisiana and retitle it, they're going to go by that Alabama title, which is clear. So now you got a clean Louisiana title. Yeah, yeah so there's, there's ways around it. There are always ways to get around things, and these are the reasons why people have to be so, so, so careful buying used cars, particularly after a major catastrophic Incident, event right. like this. Yeah, all this stuff up on the East Coast, I mean, that's going to probably wipe out 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 cars. Sure. And those cars are going to go somewhere. That's right. a lot of money. You figure late model used car can be anywhere from – Fifteen to thirty thousand dollars, right? Times thirty to forty thousand of them. <laughs> that, that's a lot of money. A lot, lot of money. Somebody's going to figure out a way. Oh yeah, to do something with that or, or try to get to it. But in a proper pre-purchase inspection, I know we do this a lot, and because we are so used to flooded cars, we know the things what to, to look, look for. for. And one of the things you're going to do, of course, is look under the dash with a flashlight. Look for corrosion, corroded terminals. You may lift carpeting up. Anything under that carpet. You know, when that car was built, 
the car was brand new, the floors were painted, and the carpet went down with the jute padding and all that. Nothing should be under that carpeting. Exactly. So if you find something under the carpet, it got there after it left the factory. Right. If you find leaves or pine needles or pea gravel or right. any of that stuff under that carpeting, even though it may be dry at this point, because there are machines called dehydrators they can sure. put inside the car. It'll suck the moisture out. Sure. But the debris is generally going to stay behind. Another classic place you look is like inside the bumper reinforcements. Right. Because a bumper reinforcement is built sort of like a box. Well, it's a piece, piece of, of channel piece yeah. of channel with lip on the back of right. it. Right, for strength. For strength. And what happens is that stuff gets up in there. When the water comes up, it just floats up in there. And then when the water goes down, it stays. Right. It's heavier than the water is, so the water tends to run out of the cracks and all that. But the debris will remain up inside this channel. Yep. So it gives you a good place to look. You know, things like mud up yeah. inside of a piece of channel line or in the floor. In the frame rail. In, inside the frame rails is silt and mud inside the frame rail. That had to get in there some kind of way. Sure. And either it was driving through high water, which is really bad, or... High water rising up. up on the car. But the point is, there are ways that a professional can spot these. Now, I'm not saying the general do-it-yourselfer couldn't spot them sure. if he were prudent enough, but he's not really set up to do this. He doesn't have a lift for the to most get underneath. part to raise the car, get right. under, do a thorough inspection. It, it's so much easier when you, when you can stand there and use a flashlight and look around eye level instead of trying to lay on your back and look around underneath the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And particularly if you know kind of sort of what to look for. If you've seen this over and over again, you know, the average person buying a car, they may have some rough idea of mm-hmm. what they're looking for. But a guy who does inspections all day long, he knows. Right. Not unlike a home inspect, you may walk through this house and think, not- hey, boy, this is beautiful. I love it. You get a home inspector, and he comes back with a list of 30 different things. Right. Because he's used to looking for it. He knows what to look for. Right. When he sees that stain around the base of the toilet, he knows what that means. You know, you just think the paint's a little discolored. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, he looks in the electrical service box, and he knows it doesn't have a what they call anti-arc device on there. Well, he knows that's a problem. Mm-hmm. You and I right, wouldn't, wouldn't know. Would never even think of, of those sorts of things. They'll even take and put moisture meters in the wall and all to look for moisture leaking into the walls. So, I mean, an inspector who does this over and again and is equipped to do it is going to find things that the average person probably would never see. Hey, take our first quick little break and be right back with more in the Automotive Hour. Ah, yes, Mr. Bigfoot. Uh, make yourself comfortable on the couch and tell me what has stressed you out. Uh, I'm just a secluded forest dweller, and I like it like that. But every now and then I get these people hunting me down. There's a TV show, jerky commercials, and now another movie. Then I worry about the hype. If they do find me, will my feet be big enough? Well, Mr. Foot, I can't really do much about these people, but I can tell you how to create some peace of mind in your life. Do like me and take your car to Agco once a year for a general inspection. They provide me an honest opinion on the maintenance and repairs I need now and in the future. They can even catch small issues that can lead to big, expensive problems down the road. An Agco general inspection, huh? Oh, one more thing, Doc. Could you tell me where I can find this toilet paper? I've heard wonderful things about it. Here's Agco's number. And the name of another store that may ship some TP straight to your cave. Thanks, Doc. Get your own peace of mind and schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. 
Hey, welcome back. If you just join us at the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between drills, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you may have. Our number is 291-6901. You can give us a call. Glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. That we will. Talking a little bit about used vehicles and used vehicle inspections such as that. Of course, we never limit it to that topic. You call anything you might have on your mind. We never limit to any specific topic. Nope. We'll try to answer any question you got there. There you go. Automotive related. That's right. <laughs> Again, we were talking just a little bit about having a car inspected before you buy it. And right. what happens, not only does the water, when it rises up, get into things like electrical connectors and all, but basically any part on your car that rotates, which is most of the parts on the car, has to be lubricated. Right. Else it would burn up. And anything that's lubricated is going to have to be vented. Because when you take any lubricant, be it grease, oil, whatever, Petroleum. and you start to churn it, it's going to produce pressure. Sure. So that pressure's got to go somewhere. It's got to go somewhere, so everything is going to be vented. And through those vents, the pressure goes out, but water also goes in. And once water gets into some of these assemblies, it depends on what it is. For instance, if it's a, a rear differential and water gets in, if you immediately pull the rear cover, clean it out, re-lubricate it, you might get by with that. Right. But something like an automatic transmission, it has these clutches. All those clutches are running in oil constantly. So the adhesives that hold them together have to be water-soluble. Because water is not supposed to be in there. Right. If they're petroleum-soluble, the, the oil would break the clutches down. Right. So they're water-soluble. And if water gets on them, it's not a matter of if they're going to fail. It's just a matter of when they're going to fail. Sure. They're going to fail. There's no fixing that. You can flush it out. You can clean it out and do whatever you want. The clutches are going to come apart when they do. The transmission is going to fail. Let's go to our phone lines. We've got Joe online. Good morning, Joe. Morning, guys. How y'all doing? Doing, doing great, great, sir. Well, I appreciate everything y'all do for us out here in, in the car world. I have an 04 Maxima with mm-hmm. about 85,000 miles. And just yesterday, it looks like it's being it's stuck in fifth gear. Okay. It's hard to start. And then when I put it into the drive side and I can move it over to the manual, it just shows up that it's in fifth gear, and I have no acceleration until I get up to about 40 to 50 miles an hour. Yeah, that, Joe, is not necessarily a transmission problem. See, that's electronically controlled transmission, and let's say something like a manual lever position sensor, that's a sensor on the side of the case that tells it what gear you're selecting. And if it's not giving a command, then it may not know what gear you want it to be in. Now, the big problem with that is if you try to take off in fifth gear is that those clutches are slipping because it's geared up so high it just can't turn. The motor's making power, so the clutches slip, and you'll burn transmission up real, real, real quick. So it's going to be pretty important to get that to someone who can do some diagnosis for you. I would start out with a scan of the codes to see if there's any code stored in there. If it's losing any of the sensors, for instance, it may not have a speed input, so it doesn't know what the speed is. It may not have a vacuum input from the engine, so it doesn't know how much acceleration you're giving. Right. There's any number of factors. It could also be something like the transmission control module may have just shorted out. I mean, it is possible that something in transmission is broken, but generally they're not going to go into fifth gear when that happens. They're just going to go to neutral, you know, not move at all. Right. Or they'll lock up in first gear or something, but I would suspect it's probably something on the outside right now if you keep trying to drive it i mean even driving it to the shop could be pretty risky you could end up burning it up pretty fast okay so i mean i would probably find someone who can do some diagnosis and you know the the way that you kind of sort of find the right guy if you call a transmission shop 
and tell them what it's doing, and they start talking prices to you, like, well, rebuilt transmission, you're in the wrong place, just hang up. <laughs> because he's already qualifying you for a transmission is what he's doing, and yeah, he's, you may very well put a transmission and still have the same problem. So okay. what you want is a guy, we are going to diagnose the problem. We charge this much per hour. We charge in one-tenth of an hour increments. It may take up to an hour for me to know. You know That's the kind of guy you're looking for. Right. So you'll know, by the way, just call him and say, look, I've got a Maxima, and it is stuck in fifth gear. It won't shift out. What do we need to do? And just see if he starts talking about price and transmissions and all that, you soon hang up. All right. Well, then I'll give Elizabeth a call on Monday and see if y'all got some time next week. Okay. Sounds All right. great. All right. Thank you. Thanks, man. Bye bye. All right. 291 6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we'd love to have you. Just give us a call and we'll try to help you out. And we were talking just a bit about flood damage and right. such as that. Some things are going to show up pretty quickly, like a transmission right. once it gets water into the transmission it's generally not going to be very long it's going to fail completely other things are they kind of take a little while well to, a wheel like bearings. a wheel bearing wheel bearings you know after that big flood what was that a couple of years ago now yeah. i guess here in baton rouge probably three to six months later we started getting wheel Just bearings in. i mean we were changing wheel bearings all day long sure and what happens is that people think nothing of driving through water 10, 12 inches deep. Of course not. But the wheel bearings are underwater at this point. And the seal on the back of that wheel bearing is to keep splash water. Well, it's it's not waterproof. It's, it's, it's water resistant. It's the grease in, and it will shield some things right. out. Rain will basically bounce off. But if you put that underwater and rotate it, it can't it's, can't say it yeah, can't you it can't work that way. No, it's, it's not a mechanical seal like they have on a submarine or something. It's just right. a rubber seal, and the bearing is generally kind of hot. It quenches through this cold water, which tends to draw more in, and the water leaks in past the seal. Now, you're not going to know that day. Nope, it's not going to make one bit of difference. You're not going to know anything has happened. But the water has gotten in, so it's going to start to emulsify the grease. Right. It's also going to start to rust little ball bearings or roller bearings and stuff, probably anywhere from a month to six months later, you're going to drive down the road and you hear loud roaring noise. Oh, what is that? And it can be difficult to even determine which bearing or bearings it is. Some vehicles, some vehicles you just have to know. You know, we've worked on enough of the, let's say, just take the Toyota product, for Mm -hmm. instance, the Sequoia, the, the pickup trucks. When one of the rear wheel bearings goes out, Anybody that is not really knowledgeable and hasn't worked on one of those would swear it was a front. Right. It sounds like a front. But it's not. The noise is transferring all around under the vehicle. The wind under the car is stirring that noise up. And they generally will come in and say, I got a bad front wheel bearing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you go drive the car with microphones under the car, which narrows it down a whole lot more. And you call and say, no, what you got is a bad rear, rear. wheel bearing. No, no, noise is in the front. Yeah, said, well, I'm telling you, the noise is in the back. Right. It just it's moving around underneath the vehicle, and it sounds like a front. And vice versa. I've seen a front wheel bearing sure. sound like it was in the back. Sure. Not even to begin to talk about left and right. Oh, not. that's a whole other situation. And even with microphones under the car, a rotary switch and headphones with a professional listening, you can it's get still fooled. difficult. Yeah. You can still get fooled. I mean, I've heard noise, and it will transfer around. Many, many times what you'll hear is that you got a noise, a loud noise on the left front, and you'll hear the same noise on the right front, but not quite as loud. Mm-hmm. 
And it could be that both wheels have gone through the same exact thing. Sure. So they may both very well be bad. But sometimes it's just the noise that's transferring over because it's going down one drive axle, through the differential, through the other drive axle, and into the other wheel. You're just hearing the noise on both sides. Right. And what we always tell people in a situation like that is the left front wheel bearing is definitely bad. No right. question we know about that. it. It's very loud. I can hear it directly in the bearing. I've even got slack in the bearing. I am also hearing some noise on the right side. I'm not 100% sure with that. Let's change the left one. We know it's bad. We know it's bad. We'll go drive it. If we hear noise on the other side, we can call you back. Right. And so long as they're understanding about that, that, hey, this is just the way it is. There's mm-hmm. no way to say for certain. And I'd say a lot of times we change the one left and noise on the right goes away. Yep. Occasionally, you've got the same noise on the right side. It's just not quite as loud. I've also seen where they'll come in and maybe you replace the bearing on the left. The other side's perfectly quiet. Three to six months later, they'll come, well, it's making that same noise again. It's well, no, on the other it's side. making noise <laughs> on the other side Right. Now. And, and you got to figure, they both went down the same road at the same time under the same condition. Mm-hmm. So one just happened to fail before the other one did. Right. Uh, maybe just a little bit more water got into the other one. Maybe it was just a little more prone to it. I noticed that we seem to change more right side wheel right. bearings than left side right and i always attributed that because most roads tend to lean to the right the shoulders on the right there's more water on the right side also the curb and stuff is on the right that wheel tends to take a little more abuse if you sure. run off the road the right wheel is more likely to strike the curve than the left wheel right also potholes very often are or towards the-, the shoulder they're not really in the center of the road although they can be mm-hmm there tends to be more stuff towards the shoulder because the shoulder road cracks off and breaks off. So that side seems to be maybe a little rougher. Right. So for whatever reason, I always notice we change more right side wheel bearings, more right side tie rods, more right side ball joints. Sure. Than we do left sides per se. And again, you can't say that unilaterally across the board because tomorrow we'll come in one oh, yeah, left course. and right was still okay, you know. <laughs> But, yeah, just a general rule, just because of the different factors and stuff that are in there, uh, the right side seems to be... Take, uh, takes more of the beating. Mm-hmm. And I find the front tends to take a little more than the rear. Right. In most cases. Although, like you said, you have some vehicles with rear wheel bearings are more of a problem. Hey, one more quick little break. Be right back with a whole lot more. So lie back on the couch, Ms. Bo Peep, and tell me what's got you stressed. Ugh, my sheep keep getting lost. I mean, they're in the meadow one minute, and I look down at a text, and then I don't know where to find them. And they keep doing it. Let me level with you, Doc. Sheep are not the smartest animals. <laughs> but you, Denise, you're the exception. Look, Doc, you ever try to have a conversation with a sheep? It's a little one-sided. They just look at you with this blank look on their faces. That and the whole getting lost thing has me at my wit's end. I can't really help you with losing sheep, but I can tell you how to get a little peace of mind. Do like me and take your car into Agco Automotive once a year for a general inspection. They check everything out and perform maintenance on what you need to keep your car running right, and it saves money in the long run. Ooh, with the money I save, I can buy some shock collars to keep those little halfwits in one place. Denise, you know I wouldn't do that to you. Get your own peace of mind and schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. If you just join us in the Automotive Hour, I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you may have. Just give us a call. Our number is 291-6901. Appreciate hearing from you. Any questions you might have? That's it. We've still got plenty of time. That's it. Exactly right. 
and we were talking just a little bit about just different types of things that happen on cars and, and such as that. And a lot of times I know there is a reluctance to pay someone to tell you what is wrong with a car. Mm-hmm. And I think this stems from a time when cars were so simple that the average person could pretty much figure out what was wrong with his own car. Sure. And certainly any mechanic could probably walk up to the car and tell you what was wrong in about two minutes. I was thinking this morning when cars, a car that wouldn't start, how simple that was to figure out what was wrong. I mean, basically all you would do is the first thing you do, maybe take the air cleaner off, work the throttle linkage, and see, see if the ga- gas fuel was squirting in the carburetor. Yeah. Well, first thing you turn the key and it would crank. I meant the electrical system was okay. Right. Because it cranks. That You just confirmed the entire electrical system right at that one point. Look down the air horn, work the throttle. Okay, it's gas squirting out. Then you pull the call wire off, put it next to the engine box, crank it, have someone crank it, spark. I mean, if you had a spark, you had gas, you and had it was cranking over, then it probably jumped timing. Right. You just look at the time mark, crank it around to top dead center, see if the two valves closed down so on, you had it figured out. I mean, the Pretty whole simple. thing probably took 10 minutes. Right. And it didn't require any type of tooling, any type of equipment. And just a little bit of common sense. And, and all the vehicles were basically about the same. Exactly the same. You would diagnose you diagnose a Chevrolet the same way you diagnose a Dodge yep. or a Ford or, you know, whatever you were working on, they were all, they took the same diagnostic skill. Well, and back then, about the only foreign car you had was Volkswagen. You might have a Volkswagen Beetle come in every once in a great while. Sure. Just didn't have imported cars to any degree. Right. And, I mean, somebody had a Renault or something like that, but that was kind of a a real real weird situation but yeah all the cars were the same and all the systems worked the same right i mean in those days a evaporative emission system was a little hole top gas cap (laughs) (laughs) you know now there's probably 300 parts computer controlled to work the evaporative emissions on the fuel system and all of them are, are all all of them are different everyone is completely different so before you can do anything, let's just take the same no start that comes in today. Sure. Okay, you turn the key, it cranks. That does not mean the electrical system's okay. Nope. That just means it has enough power to turn the starter. But if that voltage is dropping on crank, it may not start. Right. It, it may crank just fine and not start, and well, it could be something eight, the electrical system. Eight volts will crank an engine That's over. That's right. Particularly like with diesels and all, some of your, particularly your older, like your 73 Fords, yeah, they could be cranking and just not cranking fast enough. Sure. And they weren't going to start. I mean, it had to spin at a certain speed, and it took a certain amount of power to do that. And it's impossible to hear that with your ear. Right. Of course, you don't have a carburetor anymore. There's nothing to look at. You can't verify that to even have fuel pressure at all without a gauge. And there are probably 100 different adapters and 100 different places and ways to connect these adapters sure. to the engine. So it can take up to an hour just, just to, to verify fuel pressure. a fuel gauge just to see if you have fuel pressure. Right. Now, And then you have to have adequate fuel pressure, not just fuel pressure. You have to have the correct amount because you've got too much or, or too, too little. little. It it's may not going to run start. And the thing is, even if you, back in the day, you had a mechanical fuel pump. So if the motor was turning, the fuel pump was turning. Sure. Nowadays, you could lack fuel pressure and not have anything to do with the fuel system. For instance, if it thinks the car is being stolen, doesn't matter that it isn't being stolen. If it thinks it's being stolen, one of the first things it's going to do is going to cut the power to the fuel pump. Right. So you're not going to have fuel pressure. There's nothing wrong with the fuel pump. So you check fuel pressure. I got no fuel pressure. Well, that doesn't mean you need a fuel pump. 
you have to go and see, do I have power, ground, and control to the pump? Correct. If I don't, why not? Because it's not going to be a fuse because no fuse on that system. It could be that you're not getting command to the SCR that fires the fuel pump right. because it's seeing something else that it thinks the car shouldn't be starting. I remember we had a guy come in a while back, and car would not start, wouldn't crank, wouldn't, I mean, crank, but it wouldn't start. He checked the fuel pressure, no fuel pressure. So first thing he does, he puts fuel pump on it. Right. Well, it still won't start. So he says, well, maybe it was the fuel pump relay. So he puts a fuel pump relay in it, still won't start. So he gets a book, and he starts reading, and he says, well, command comes from the PCM. Right. So he puts a PCM in it, still won't start. Well, at this point, he's probably out a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks plus all his time for aggravation. I'm not sure the parts he put on were as good as the ones he took off, but that's a whole different story. The point is, he finally brings it into the shop, and the driver's door switch is bad, and it's showing the door is still locked when, in fact, it is unlocked. Okay. For instance, you hit the remote, the door unlocks. But, but the, it, com- the computer thinks it's still locked. That's the mechanical side of the latch. There's also a sensor that when it unlocks, it tells the computer it's unlocked. Correct. It thinks the door is locked. Now, when, when you the, open the door, and you get in, and you put the key in, it says, wait a minute, the door's locked, somebody's starting the car, this car's being stolen. Sure. The theft system arms, it's just a fuel pump down. Well, again, we're going back to our original example all of that could have been diagnosed by taking the air clean off, looking in there, pumping the, the accelerator pedal. Sure. I mean, you could have seen right there all that was okay. But now it takes upwards of about forty to $50,000 worth of tooling, equipment, information, at least an hour's time or more. From a trained technician. From a trained guy who understands how all this stuff works just to come to the source of the problem, which was the door safety switch, mm-hmm. you know, the, the door switch. I mean, even the door switch, okay, there's four doors on the car. Which, Which one switch is it? <laughs> so yep. if you don't have a factory-type scan tool. To access that information in the body control module. That's in the body module. That's not in the PCM. You're not right. going to get that with a little code reader. Right. You have to go into the body module. You have to be able to access the security system, even to know that it's armed. Once you see it's armed, you have to start checking all the inputs, of which there might be a dozen or more inputs mm-hmm. to the system. And then you have to figure out which one is telling this thing to shut down. All that is after you've discovered that you don't have fuel pressure and so on. The point is, that's the reason why diagnosis costs as much as it does. Sure. Because it requires a lot of time, a lot of tooling. And a lot of training. A highly skilled individual just to do it. Now, we could say, well, it shouldn't be so complex. Well, that's great. It but shouldn't be. shouldn't be, but it is. <laughs> it just is. And when your car doesn't start, it really doesn't matter. Right. Because you can't go argue with GM or Ford or Chrysler or Toyota and tell them they shouldn't make the car so complex. That's just the way it is. It's just the world we live in. I mean, I can remember a time when cars, you had to put the key in it and turn it to lock, to lock the ignition. Mm-hmm. If you just took the key out, there was a little feature on the lock cylinder where you could turn it by hand. And some people never locked their cars. Right. Because they didn't want to hassle with a key. You could just go in there, turn the thing, and it would start. And it would run. Well, at some point, they said, well, too many people are stealing cars. So then they made it to where when you take the key out, it would automatically lock, and you had to put a key in to turn it. That was the first evolution of theft yeah. protection. Had to put the correct key in. The correct key in. Tumble it, it and mm-hmm. then it would turn. And 
course, it didn't take very long to figure out that there's only so many combinations. Of, well, you take of a hot wire because all you needed was 12 volts to the call. So you could run a hot wire from the battery to the call, take a screwdriver, jump across the starter solenoid, and start it without a key. Sure. And so they said, okay, well, what we're going to do is we start locking the steering column. So even if they get it started, at least they can't drive the car. So then we came out with locking steering columns and all the different stuff. Well, again, didn't take a thief too long to figure out. You could put a slide hammer in there, yank the cylinder out. Take a screwdriver and break the column break open, the column. reach and grab the lever, and, and start the car. Mm-hmm. So there was any number of ways they could hotwire cars. and There's always store. some way around. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, with the age of electronics that we have nowadays, everything has to be enabled by some electrical module or mm-hmm. whatever. So it's very easy for them to just totally shut a car down. Sure. Very easy. And the way most vehicles work today, there's either a chip in the key or there's a chip somewhere in the cylinder. When the cylinder rotates, that chip passes by a Hall Effect sensor, and it produces a square wave, which it knows is proper for this car. At that point, it realizes, okay, I've got the right key. I've got the right chip. The square wave goes to the body module. It says, okay, this is correct for this car. It sends it to the PCM, says, yeah, that matches what I got on hand, and starts the car. Sure. Now, if anything in there does not line up, then it's not going to start. Right. It's going to say, hey, well, something's being something's being um, messed up here, so we're not going to start because this doesn't match this right. through the body, mo- through well, the modules. And not only is it going to shut the fuel pump off, but it's going to shut the ignition down. It's going to shut command to the transmission down. It may shut any number of other functions down that you've got to have for this car to run. So what has happened is that basically it's way over the heads of any thugs out there. They're not going to steal cars. You're not going to see a car stolen Without the keys. Without the keys, like it used to be in right. day. So what we've done now is we've created a bunch of people walk up with a gun, stick in your face, and give me keys. Right. <laughs> All right. Which is maybe a worse problem. <laughs> I know. <laughs> At least before, they just got the key. Yeah. You know, just that, got the car. Just got the car. That's a whole other discussion for a whole other day there. These, all of this is just one system that can shut this car down. Mm-hmm. So, again, going back to our no-start problem that we could diagnose in 30 seconds for the most part, it was very, very, very simple. And... The average person who knew something about cars could probably figure it out himself. Right. If he had to take it to the shop, it would probably take 10, 15 minutes with no tooling, no equipment. Guys go out in the parking lot and figure it out. So it was very common to have free diagnosis back in those days. He would diagnose problem just as a – because he knew a lot. He could do it real quick. And then you'd give him the repair work. So he'd make his money on the repair work, and that was fine. But now diagnosing the car can cost a whole lot more than fixing the car. Sure. You know, for instance, discovering that this which switch it is and that that is what's shutting the car down could take upwards of two, two and a half hours of time, forty to $50,000 worth of equipment, whereas replacing the switch is probably an hour at most once you get the door panel off. And you know, so the repair is a much smaller problem than finding out, what out what's is. wrong. Yeah. So the, the point is it's going to cost to diagnose the car, and it's going to probably cost – many cases more than the repair does mm-hmm. just to figure out what is wrong and people tend to balk at that they say well it costs too much to repair to diagnose i said no 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 it is far less expensive to re- diagnose than to just start throwing parts at this thing because every one of these components nowadays can be three four hundred dollars or more and most of them have to be programmed to the vehicle now mm-hmm. you know it's not just you're going to go swap this pcm out Right. You put a PCM in, then you have to get the programming from the manufacturer, program it to this vehicle, marry the VIN number to it, and then it will start working. 
it's not just a plug-and-play part anymore. Well, that's right. And if you go and just throw a PCM in there and you crank it up and start, it's going to give you about 20 miles right. that it's going to run, and then it's going to shut down, and then it's new PCM be bought. Because if you hadn't programmed it in the first 20 miles, once it hits 20, it locks out. Right. You it got says, an expensive, hey, somebody, somebody's trying to steal this car. You've got an expensive paperweight. That's right. It's, it's, it's worth nothing. you got to send it back and get another one. You're not going to get that warranty, believe no. me. <laughs> they're not, they're not going to fall for that. No. But, you know, when you talk about diagnosis is expensive, it's kind of like I remember a guy told me, I was talking about education, how expensive education is. And the guy says, well, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. ignorance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. The reason for diagnosis is sort of like the reason for maintenance because it's less expensive than not doing it. Right. It's to save you money. That's why we diagnose these problems. And, again, this is just one little instance, but it goes on and on. Had a guy a while back, and, again, his car wouldn't start. And the first thing he noticed, he got a little code reader, and it had a cam sensor code. Right. So, okay, well, cam sensor must be bad. Puts cam sensor in. It still won't start, but now it's got a crank sensor code. Okay, well, maybe they were both bad. He puts a crank sensor. Again, car still won't start. So he goes through a bunch of gyrations, changing a bunch of components. He changed some connectors and what have you. But what had actually happened is that the car had jumped timing, which is a very, very difficult thing to find out on a modern car. It is. Because they don't have timing marks on the outside for the most part. You have to remove the timing cover which could be up to an 18 hour job on some cars depending on the application yeah. to get the timing cover sometimes the engine has to come out to get the timing cover off then you have to line everything up to even verify that the timing is off now let's say it jumped one tooth well what that's going to do the first thing is going to disturb the relationship between the cam and the crank timing right those are gonna... off now well the only thing the computer can see is that this timing doesn't correlate Correct. Cam and crank. So it may set a cam code. It may set a crank code. Nothing wrong with either one of those sensors. The sensors are reading properly. If they weren't reading properly, it wouldn't be setting that code. Right. Because it wouldn't know the timing was off. Now, that could be the cam sprocket is bad. That could be the actuator for the sprocket. That could be the sensor that tells the actuator to open. Right. Could be a tensioner broken. It could be the timing chain has physically stretched and jumped timing. The point is, how much money could you spend changing stuff with guesses because uh, just well, about every you could you could change everything yeah i mean first thing you get a little code reader you go to a parts store and he tells you cam sensor well you put a cam sensor okay well that was 100 bucks then you get a crank sensor well that's another 100 another bucks. 100 bucks plus your time then your neighbor says well my car wouldn't start and it was this so you go change that well you know you could talk to a guy who used to be a mechanic and he says well yeah it could be such and such mm-hmm. well yeah it could be all kinds of stuff it's like we tell people on the show all the time, well, could it be this? Absolutely yeah. it could be. But we don't know that. And that part costs this much money plus this much installation. Plus, without knowing what it is, we can't just go start throwing parts at this thing. We get this a lot with an intermittent problem. You can't duplicate the problem. Mm-hmm. Let's say the car dies, and it's very frustrating to the owner, but when you get the car running perfectly, you drive it for 100 miles, it never dies. Right. It's just very intermittent problem. Well, could it be the fuel pump? Yes, it could be the fuel pump. Well, let's just change. Well, okay, but after we've spent seven, eight, nine hundred dollars to change the fuel pump, you still have no more peace of mind you have before because you still don't know if you fixed anything. Sure, it was running before; it's running after. And and worse off, it starts happening again. Okay, so it happens again. Okay, well, could it be? So, could it be the computer? Yeah, it could be the computer. Could be the ignition switch. Sure, could be a wire. 
could be i could sit here for, oh we could could be for hours yeah for for days and days and days i could tell you all the things that it could be but the point is if we don't know what it is we can't duplicate it with equipment on the car to verify it and then change the component and verify it again we fixed, really don't right. know that we fixed anything correct now there are times when the could be is maybe very inexpensive maybe it's a pattern failure on this particular car right okay well then it makes maybe some sense to, it, to go ahead and let's 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 try this we're gonna take a quick little break be back with a whole lot more in the automotive hour Hello, you must be Glenda de Goodvich. Uh, relax on the couch and tell me what's stressing you out. Do you know how stressful it is to be good all the time? I don't want to be wicked, but sometimes I just like to not say thank you or pinch a bratty kid or stick my finger in a chocolate. And if I don't like the flavor, put it back in the box. Oh, that would be divine. Unfortunately, Glenda, I can't assist you with your goodness issues, uh, but for peace of mind, schedule an annual general inspection with Agco Automotive. They'll check out your vehicle, perform needed maintenance, and let you know about future repairs. Sad ways, there are no surprises. Well, you definitely want your automotive repair shop to be good and not wicked. A young girl once told me there's no place like home. And I've got to go. Just bill me. I'll be somewhere over the rainbow. Toodaloo! Hmm, that little witch might not be so good after all. Get your own peace of mind and schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between tools to try to answer any automotive questions you might have. And we were talking just a little bit about diagnosis and why you would want to diagnose something as opposed to just changing parts. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And again, like any rule, is always going to be an exception. Sure. I recall back in the, oh, I don't know, I think it was the late 90s, early 2000s, there were Nissans that would just die. Right. You'd be driving along, engine would just die, and it might start right back up. It may have to sit a few minutes, and it would start back up. And it happened to a lot of them. And they were having problems with the crankshaft position sensors. And there were two of them on there, and they were very inexpensive i want to say they were 30 dollars a piece fairly easy to change well one of them was easy to change the yeah. other one was a nightmare was it yes <laughs> I, I, I don't recall on the v6 but. model the the front one one on the front bank was fairly easy to okay. change the one on the back bank you really couldn't see it from the top or okay. the bottom it was more of a feel okay type repair but it had the same problem yeah, as but, the one on the top but relatively easy to change as things go you don't have to pull the motor out to call no. anything and when you got one of those cars in with an intermittent dying problem and people were frustrated, I, you could always explain, look, this is a fairly common problem. Happens on most of them. Happens on a lot of them. If, it ha if it's not happening now, it probably will happen on your car sooner or later. Sure. And it's only going to cost this much. Let's start with this before we go do a bunch of involved diagnostics. Right. And most of the time, that fixed the problem, and they were happy. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, they had to come back, and it was something else. But well, again, up front, they knew, hey, this this is a common failure problem. We change a lot of these for this symptom. We can change it. If it doesn't fix it, we'll have to do di more diagnosis. And, and as long as you told the customer up front, everything was great. Yeah, the thing is, is being an intermittent problem, I couldn't duplicate it, so I couldn't say with certainty that this sure. is it. We had the same issue with a lot of the Hondas back several years ago where the pcmi relay would go bad mm -hmm. and it would work fine 90 percent of the time but every once in a while you would get in the car and you'd crank 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 crank, crank and it just wouldn't start sure it would sit there for a while and boom it would crank right up well we had a lady who it would do hers would do it 
fairly regular, but I guess fairly regular being maybe once every two weeks. Right. She'd bring the car to the shop. She had towed to the shop two or three times. It would start right up every time she would. She got in her car with her cell phone and drove around the shop for right. about two days. I remember that. I don't remember how many miles. Never could get it to occur. So finally, I told her, I said, the most likely cause is the PCMI relay. But that is about a $100 part. Sure. If you're willing, she said, I'm willing to do anything. If it might fix it, let's try it. We put the PCMI relay in there and fix the problem. So right. she was thrilled to death. But the thing is, when you're dealing with three, four, five hundred dollars $500 parts and not such a certainty, in other words, this is one possibility out of maybe 30, 40, 50 possibilities. That's not a common uh, it's failure not, part. It's not a common failure part. There's no indication that this one is bad, no indication that it's going to go bad, no reason to believe that it's more likely than any of the other 200 things that it could be, then it's sort of foolish to go in and just start throwing parts at it. Exactly. And I had a lady one time, she said, well, we got to do something. I said, well, go buy you one of those little Christmas, Christmas, Christmas trees, trees hanging out in the rear mirror. Yeah. If you just got to do something, I mean, at least the car will smell good. It ain't going to fix it, but neither is this. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we can't just start guessing and changing stuff and hoping that we're going to come across the right. cause simply because there's just too many calls. We have to have something, some logical thing, some logical reason. To go a certain direction. If this direction. is a very high failure item and it will do the thing and people are understanding, then you can understand. You can tell them this is a possibility. We can try it. Right. If not, then we just have to wait until it becomes more prominent, more prominent, where we can get it to do it in the shop. And I know that's not what people want to hear, but if you're testing a circuit and it tests good, that's really as far as you can go. It's an electrical circuit. It's either working or it's not. Yeah, it's off or on. And if it's on at this time, there's nothing that's going to tell me it's on right now, but it's going to be off two days from now. Correct. Or three days or three months or whatever. I see we're just about out of time. We'll start winding on up, getting ready to get on out of here. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. Tell your friends and go to your favorite broadcast or rebroadcast service. Find a written review and fill it out for us. Hey, go send us a written review. That'll move us up in ranking so more people can listen. We can keep doing the show. Pre-City was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.